0: Baby Boomers were the me generation. Millennials, the cover of Time in 2014 was the me, me, me generation. Right. You might say Gen Zers are the me, 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 me generation. <laughs> and it's not because they're uniquely narcissistic, it's because they're growing up in a culture that says, you can have what you want, where you want it, when you want it, how you want it. In terms of music, in terms of shopping, in terms of education, they live in a world with endless choices.
1: Sign up for our weekly newsletter and get the White Horse Inn delivered to your inbox each week. Every Monday, you'll receive a link to listen to the show along with program details, social media memes to share, and terms to learn. And when you sign up, you'll also receive a free audio download on the topic of justification. Just head to whitehorseinn.org slash newsletter. That's whitehorseinn.org slash newsletter. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across
2: Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge Inn called the
1: White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hello and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. Over the past decade, numerous stats have revealed the disturbing fact that the majority of those raised in conservative Christian homes actually stop going to church sometime in their late teens and early 20s. David Kinnaman of the Barner Research Group notes that, quote, "...much of the ministry to teenagers in America needs an overhaul, not because churches fail to attract significant numbers of young people, but because so much of those efforts are not creating a sustainable faith beyond high school." In his book After the Baby Boomers, Princeton sociologist Robert Wethnow observes that younger adult Christians are less involved in their congregations than older adults are, and that these younger adults are currently less involved than younger adults were a generation ago. If I were a religious leader, Wethnow writes, I would be troubled by these figures. In fact, he concludes by saying that unless religious leaders take younger adults more seriously, the future of American religion is in doubt. As I have had the opportunity to interview pastors, youth pastors, and informed lay people over the past several years in a variety of different contexts, it appears that Christians are becoming increasingly aware of the severity of the problem we're facing with the next generation. Listen, for example, to the following interviews I recorded at a number of Christian conventions over this past decade. I think that we have a lot to worry
3: about with this next generation. As a church I think we're failing miserably. We've definitely become much more concerned about getting them into the church rather than raising them up as disciples of Christ. We've got a major problem on our hands with that. I think that there are healthy churches but as a church overall we've, uh, we've lost our focus and we've lost our mission. If Jesus is just a buddy then we've missed the point and unfortunately we've passed that down to our kids, and we've laid off all uh, responsibility of teaching them
0: about Jesus to a paid youth staff, and that's not how it really works. I think discipleship is the the missing ingredient that
1: most churches don't seem to have. Uh, Instead of making disciples, we tend
0: to make consumers.
2: I personally believe it is the family, it is the parents, you have to start there parents have to say, this is what you're going to face, this is what's out there, and your parents have to be equipped. But your church and youth group has to complement what's happening in your home.
1: Families have designated the church as the area where their children are supposed to learn the truth from the Bible, and they've exempted themselves from that. We did not have our sons involved greatly in the youth ministry because we felt like there was too much of the entertainment factor
4: encouraged rather than spiritual depth.
0: I think it would behoove a lot of pastors, particularly youth pastors, to reach the kids one-on-one. The young people need that personal one-on-one. Personally, I think it's tragic that we resort so much to media to reach our kids. It's tragic that kids are coming to church and we're pointing them to a website. Jesus was all about the human touch. He was very present. And in, in a world now of social media, where every kid's nose is buried in a screen. What sets us apart is the human touch, and uh, it's very lacking. One of the flaws I think of, especially the bigger churches, is that the youth ministry is so segmented from the adults.
2: Adults need to interact with youth. Youth need to interact with kids. There's so many things coming at them right. today, from television, so they're constantly on their phones. and Just to get them to put those phones down for an hour yeah. is even a struggle sometimes. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges today is being heard above the noise that's going on in their head. If I don't know about how better to explain that, but they might be sitting there, you might be thinking that they're looking at you, but they're
4: somewhere else. The, the Australian culture is quite different from the American culture, now you're not surprised to hear that, in the sense that, being involved in in faith and church is not something that's so mainstream in fact it's quite unusual so one of the things that we're working out on an ongoing basis in churches in australia is that whole process of drawing somebody that's in children's ministry and moving into young adults and into adult ministry because we have to work a lot harder it's about relationships within the church it's about getting kids involved in ministry outcomes and ministry themselves so it's not just an entertainment process They've got to find a deep personal relationship with Jesus. They've got to find a skill that they're giving, so they're not just being entertained, and they've got to deepen their relationships, so you've got a a sense of community in what they're doing. If you don't have those, and it's a matter of let's put the best show on, at some point they'll move from your show to what they actually want in a wider community.
5: The majority of the kids that are walking away from their faith is generally, I think, equivalent to where their parents are in their faith walk. And because so many times parents in the past several years have allowed the church to teach their kids. And so all they get is one hour on Sunday and the parents are ill-equipped. So from my perspective, what needs to happen is that churches need to start helping to equip parents and helping them to be able to understand the Word of God and to how they actually take what's happening on Sunday and be able to go throughout their lives. And that's where the breakdown is.
4: I grew up in a Christian home, my parents loved the Lord, they're the, the most amazing Christians and amazing parents. Yet, when I left school, I discovered this other world that no one had told me about. I had an, an idea that this world existed, but I was told that I wasn't to have anything to do with it.
2: My family was just, uh, we show up on Sundays and, and confess you know, your sins and you're, you're done. But when I went off to college, My faith really took a crisis when I heard the Hindu faith and what they believed and this and that and what the criticism was against the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does this all mean? There needs to be programs within the church community itself to say, look, here's what you're gonna face when you get out there. We just wanna give you the overview. Here's some resources. There are answers out there. Let us help you get hungry for that to make that attractive and empower you.
1: When I was in junior high, high school, it was church anytime the doors were open but there was a disconnect, I guess. And so when I got to college, I got out of it completely. So you think the youth ministry was more activity centered, but wasn't really equipping you?
4: Correct. That's essentially what it gets down to. I mean, the shallow nature of biblical knowledge of your average young person to young adults is abysmal. And so we've got to get somewhere where we're actually teaching some content some biblical information. So faith is actually based on something solid. Um, I think it was Tim Kellers actually talked about the fact that doubt is a good thing. You need to have doubt. Because if you don't have doubt, you'll be taken out by one of two things, a smart secular thinker or a tough time in your life. So somehow we've got to build that sort of sense of what does this stand on? Why do I believe? What exactly do I believe? Not is, hey, this is a great time. I'm going to keep turning up.
5: Apologetics is probably the most important thing for them because they need to understand when they start walking out into colleges, because that's where the drop-off primarily happens, when they're out on their own. They need to be able to understand why they believe what they believe.
1: As you can hear from those interviews, there seems to be a general awareness of the problem. Parents have outsourced the discipleship of their children to their church's youth ministry, while at the same time, many of those ministries have adopted a tractional rather than instructional models of outreach, where the focus is shifted from discipleship to entertainment. Churches also began segregating kids by age away from the life of the church so that adults and young people in a typical congregation rarely have opportunities to interact. So how should we address this problem? How are we to pass on the faith to the next generation? I recently had the opportunity to discuss this topic with Sean McDowell, co-author of a new book titled So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And the first question I asked Sean was why he and
0: his co-author, Jay Warner Wallace, were motivated to write this book. I've had a heart for the next generation for a long time, and there's a lot of parenting books that are written. There's books written for youth pastors. There's books on building relationships with the next generation. But I saw a real lack in a book that said, how do we really train and equip and raise up a generation with relationships but also to understand and develop a Christian worldview. Either books tend to be apologetic or they're relational. And we wanted to weed the two together, but essentially it's a book for anyone who cares about the next generation, parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and says we want a research-based book. So we have a ton of research on Gen Z only in one chapter. And the rest of it is just practical, simple ways to help this generation build a biblical worldview. It's one of the things I like about the book. You know, a lot of people are really interested in building relationships, but relationship
1: isn't enough. I mean, we need truth, but truth is not enough. You know, you just can't hand your kid a book and, you know, we're done. (laughs) We need to have healthy relationships
0: with our kids and we need to mentor them in the truth, right? Preach it, Shane, preach it. That's exactly (laughs) what this book is about. I mean, look, biblically, Jesus came in grace— Relationship incarnated, and He came in truth. It's truth and relationship. Look at First Thessalonians chapter one. Paul says we not only gave you the gospel content, truth, but our very own lives. And I think we make a mistake when we say we just need to give truth to this generation, or we just need to be build relationships to this generation. It's both. We build relationships to yeah. love them, and model them, and help them accept and understand truth. And the reason is because we understand truth through the relationships that we have. So our earthly fathers profoundly shape the way we understand our heavenly fathers. Truth and story is kind of the lens by which we understand reality. So truth must be incarnated in our stories and in our relationships.
1: So recently I saw a Pew study, which said that 65% of American adults now describe themselves as Christian, which is down from 77% back in 2009. So that's a 12% decline. And the report also went on to say that the portion of those who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular is now 26%. And that number was 17% again back in 2009. So what do you think accounts for the trend lines that we're seeing?
0: Well, I think it's important to try to assess what's really going on with these numbers. One trend is we just see people less likely to define themselves in a way that they used to in the past. So in the past, there's been UCLA freshman study for years. You go back to the 60s, and it was about 6% of incoming freshmen who would not define themselves by a particular religion. 2015, it was over 30%. And that's even growing with Gen Zers. So there's a sense that people say, oh my goodness, look at all these people who are leaving the Christian faith. I don't interpret it that way. I think what's happening is what used to just be you were an American, you like baseball, apple pie, and you're a Christian. Now people aren't using that moniker and they're defining themselves in other ways. Just like politically, less likely to define as Democrat or Republican, somebody is an independent. And some of this is the individualism of our culture that says, don't put me in a box. I can define myself according to however it is that I define myself. So I think in a sense, we're seeing a hollowing out of the middle ground to really one side or the other in a way it wasn't so polarized in the past.
3: I think you'll agree there's a real problem in the church. A lot of believers sitting in the pews are timid in expressing their faith to others. They know but don't know at the same time, and feeling cautious prevents them from talking about their faith. Sound familiar? That's why we focus on knowing what you believe and why you believe it. It's not just for the sake of knowing more. Instead, we want to build a strong foundation of understanding God's word so that we can have confidence, confidence to reach out, talk with others, and share the hope of the gospel. Recently on the program, we've been tackling in-depth questions about what our neighbors believe. I hope that these programs encourage you to take the conversation outside of your home, your church, and your Bible study. Whether you're sitting in a coffee shop having dinner with a neighbor or at a playground with other parents, It's our goal that you'll become more aware of opportunities you might have to engage with others. Folks, these conversations can be tough, but we have created a collection of resources that will help equip you for that task. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll send you a digital download of our new collection called Know What Your Neighbor Believes. This collection includes our current radio series, several White Horse Inn classic programs, and selected Modern Reformation articles. This collection will give you a deep understanding of God, this world, and your place in it, and it will help you to reach out to others. In order to receive your digital download, head on over to whitehorsein.org forward slash neighbor today to receive your download or call us at 1-800-890-7556. That's whitehorsein.org forward slash neighbor or call us at 1-800-890-7556. I hope you'll consider a special gift to support this work to help us keep the conversation going. You, along with many other friends, are helping to extend the gospel's reach. Your prayers and financial support make this work possible. So on behalf of our entire team here, thank you.
1: Welcome back to the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and I'm talking with Sean McDowell, co author of So the Next Generation Will Know. You mentioned Gen Z. Could you give a quick definition of what that is, particularly in comparison
0: when you distinguish it from millennials? Yeah, millennials are essentially out of college now. They're old news as far as demographers studying younger generations. It would be maybe 25 and up, roughly. Gen Zers. Basically, it would be elementary school students through college students. Now, sometimes when you define a generation, there's a five-year window where people differ. Yep. So basically, elementary through college students. Some call them the selfie generation, some the trans generation, post-millennials, Gen. But the term Gen Z is the most definitive for this generation that's really stuck. Do you think that narcissism is a big part of that demographic? One of the things that I would add is why Because we look at Gen Z and we go, well, this is just such a narcissistic generation. They're so self-absorbed. And I go, well, let's think about this. Baby boomers were the me generation. Millennials, the cover of Time in 2014 was the me, me, me generation. You might say Gen Zers are the me, 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 me generation. (laughs) And it's not because they're uniquely narcissistic. It's because they're growing up in a culture that says you can have what you want, where you want it, when you want it, how you want it. In terms of music in terms of shopping, in terms of education, they live in a world with endless choices. So this idea that there used to be an external reality I had to conform myself to is gone. Now I have endless options. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it was like Coke versus Pepsi. There's two options. Now get your own soda-making machine, the fizz, the size, the flavor you want. And if that's not enough, you can still get a Coke with your name on it. So it's that they've grown up in a culture that's pushed. Define yourself, be yourself, whatever you feel is true for you. Define yourself by consumer choices. By consumer yeah. choices, by your feelings. By what
1: you feel and, and choose. Yeah. yeah. Some years ago, I did some like, on-the-street interviews at a University of California campus And I was asking them what their views were on spirituality and religion. And one of the college kids that I spoke to said something that stood out to me. He said he stopped going to church because he basically found that it was shallow and trite and that he could get self-help lessons from a lot of other sources. Wow.
0: What do you think about that response? And do you think that's indicative of the trend that we're seeing? In his study on millennials – Christian Smith, a sociologist from Notre Dame, famously talked about moralistic therapeutic deism. And I think it's just as true today, if not more so than when he said it, meaning religion is about moralism. Just be a good person. So I hear what you just said about this young person frequently, that either Christianity is about self-help, and if I can get it somewhere else, like go to CrossFit and I get community and they encourage me and it's fun, I don't need to go to church. That's where the truth comes in. We have relationships, but it's only really in the church that we can have forgiveness and grace and I think lasting, authentic relationships. But it's not just relationships, it's true relationships with God, and it's a true worldview. That's why it has to be both. There was also a young Christian
1: girl that I interviewed there on that campus, and I asked her, if someone was to say that your faith was basically rooted in myths, what would you say to them? She was a believer.
0: And she said well i guess i would say that i choose to believe these myths wow somebody who views faith that way has one of two options either they have a i don't know any other way to put it a shallow non-influential passive faith that they don't really think is true and live out with boldness or they eventually just chuck it when something else gives them meaning in their life so that's that is unfortunate and heartbreaking here but it's not uncommon yeah Christianity is the one faith that invites investigation. It makes claims to be true in a publicly accessible fashion. Jesus says, love God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. And Isaiah, God says, come, let us reason together. In Acts 2, when the apostles are proclaiming, they talk about these miracles and they point to the people and they say, and you yourselves know this is true. This was done in public. Part of the Christian faith from Jesus, through Paul, through the apostles, all the way through the early church, is making a case how we know this is true. It's not about how you feel. In fact, if it's about how you feel, the apostles would not have been willing to go to their graves to feel better. They did that because they believed Jesus had risen from the grave. So in the early church, to be a Christian was to believe that Jesus had conquered death and had actually forgiven our sins, and we are witnesses of that. Go tell the world about it. That's what the early church proclaimed, but it's been mired in kind of our prosperity gospel, so to speak, today. So what you're saying is you don't see Peter anywhere in the book of Acts saying, you know, look what wonderful experiences I've had. Well, he had experiences of Jesus, that's for sure. But what he preach? But these were public (laughs) appearances. That's right. It wasn't just this subjective experience that made him feel better. That's why he says in 1 Peter 3, he says, be prepared to suffer for doing what is right. What are some of the
1: reasons that you've heard
0: that young people give when they say,
1: you know, why they've left the faith?
0: Well, there's often a big difference between reasons young people will give and the actual reasons. Hmm. Whether I'll they, that. well, whether they realize it or not, I think it sounds a lot more sophisticated to say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible and Christianity is a myth and evolution has disproven God. That sounds more sophisticated rather than some moral reason or relational reason or bad experience or volitional reason. So people give reasons and I'll listen to them and give them the benefit of the doubt, but I know we're much more complex beings. I mean, it's in the Proverbs it talks about a man's purposes are like a deep well and a person of wisdom draws it out. So people frequently say doubts and questions and skepticism is at the heart of why they disengage. So I think that's a piece of it. But I think there's a relational component why people walk away. I mean, frankly, the the largest study I'm aware of, 3,500 people, 35 years. So kids, parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents by a USC professor named Vern Bengston, where they studied faith transmission. They said the most statistically significant factor for faith being passed from one generation to the next is a warm relationship with the father. That's the factor they said with that adjective, Hmm. a warm relationship with a father. So I'm not even sure a lot of young people understand all the things going on in their hearts and minds that draws them away. Now, when we give kids answers and show, hey, the Bible's true and there's evidence God exists, that brings clarity and confidence that is true. And I think harder to walk away. The warm relationship with the father is interesting. There are a lot of statistics that show that something like 80 or
1: 90% of those in jail, incarcerated, Mm. have horrible relationships with their father. And I just think our families are breaking down and our time as families, it's more shaped by social media, screen time,
0: dinners aren't as common. I think if we want to understand Gen Zers, the obvious and most important place is to understand that they are truly digital natives. They're the first generation that has been raised swiping screens on tablets and phones before many could speak or read. Yeah. I'm not even sure we understand how much this shapes the brain and relationships and worldviews. It's you like see them just, at, the, at the restaurants. They're oh. they're on their iPads while the parents are talking. I go to restaurants and they have them there for you and it makes me angry. Like, that's not why yeah. I go to a right. restaurant. Yeah. But it's easier, it's yeah. easier to distract a kid, to have space, and just do that rather than the hard work at building relationships. So I think that's at the heart of a lot of anxiety that young people have. I mean, the constant pressures coming from phones. I think it's the heart of a lot of depression and loneliness. I mean, a digital light cannot compare to a physical hug. Yeah. And my point is not that technology's bad. I love technology, but I'm 43. I mean, imagine if I was 12 and 13 and faced the same constant criticism online, I can deal with it now. But when I was 12 or 13, I just was reading an article in the Atlantic this week about this leading young Instagram star and describing how she just doesn't go out anymore. She stays at home, spends all this time concocting these images with makeup and with her clothes. Well, she gets a ton of likes and follows but where's the relationship and the life experience that really brings true happiness? I don't think we really have boundaries with technology. I don't think we work on relationships, the very things we've been made for, relationship with God and with other people. And that brings in loneliness. I think it brings in pain. And the problem is it becomes a cycle because there's always been people who've been lonely and in pain, but now there's more constant ways to distract ourselves and not deal Without hurt and pain because of social media, because of Netflix, that people push it off, push it off, and then eventually just break. We don't know how to deal with the hurt inside of us, so we put Band-Aids on it. Well, that's all we have time for on this
1: radio and podcast edition of The White Horse Inn. If you'd like to listen to more of my interview with Sean McDowell, here's a sample of what we discuss on the extended edition at whitehorseinn.org.
0: I think there's a huge tendency within the church to either hunt to the youth pastor, or I taught a Christian school 10 years full-time. There are a lot of parents who are like, I'm sure glad my kids are in your class so you can teach them worldview. And I'd always nicely say, I'm happy to help you, but you have a greater voice and influence on your kids than I could ever yeah. have. Folks, to get
1: extended editions of every White Horse Inn episode, just click on the donate tab at whitehorseinn.org and sign up for one of our support programs. Also, if you'd like to have the White Horse Inn delivered to your inbox each week, simply sign up to receive our newsletter. Right now, when you sign up, you'll receive our free digital download collection on justification. The web address is whitehorseinn.org/newsletter. That's whitehorseinn.org/newsletter.